You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It's September 15th, 2022. It's 7.36 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, we've been talking about uh, preliminary practices, really, and, and uh, attachment. I think one of the things that we're going to do at Metagroup is shift more into uh, discussions around that. Um, uh, the um, I think the largely the, the thing that interests people about the work that we do is is that attachment focus piece. Um, and so I thought I would just talk a little bit about that. Uh, um, I've often uh, referred to it as a preliminary practice, something that you engage in um, uh, so that you can set yourself up to a place of, of then uh, being able to pursue deeper practice. One of the things about the West is that uh, we don't have that uh, that sort of rote uh, dedication uh, to uh, practice that is so characteristic of Asia. Uh, um, in Myanmar, I went to uh, the um, uh, a monastery outside of Mulamin, which is a big place, uh, 700 acres. Uh, and um, there was a wall down the middle of the 700 acres dividing the women's side from the men's side. And it was very traditional in that way. Uh, and uh, I was talking to them about uh, bringing a group of people to, to come and practice, uh, which is something you need to do if you want to bring a group, is to um, um, talk to them about the kind of practice that you want to do and who's likely to come and how serious the practice is. Um, and then they asked me if I would uh, do them a favor, which was to go and spend an hour with a monk uh, so that he could practice speaking English because they were training him as a translator and they they wanted him to be able to, to learn English. And so I went and sat with him and he'd been a, a monk for five years and he was uh, uh, breath counting one to ten down to one on the out breath only. And that was a, a steady progression of increasing difficulty of practice over five years. Uh, know anybody in the West that's willing to do that? <laughs> we want to go straight to the advanced practices, uh, jump over all of the preliminaries. And I think one of the reasons that, uh, that we, we get into difficulty with the practice is that when we do that, that kind of jump, there's no foundation to support some of the experiences that can come up. Uh, Christian? I know, I know I've sort of asked, I've asked you about this before, but like, do you think that there's actually a progression that someone can do over the course of five years of that kind of practice? Or is it just like, you know, like, you'll know when you get to when you get to a billion or something like that? Well, um, I would say from the conversation with him that he would he could get into uh, Vipassana jhana pretty easily. Uh, 
and that that he was really uh, exploring the the esoteric jhanas uh, in that process, but that he hadn't really gone into the vipassana side at all, and that they they didn't do much in the way of the heart practices. Uh, he needed, I guess, to have a facility for that, um, or and to satisfy some requirement of his teachers that uh, he didn't share with me. And so I don't know. He was also young. And so it may be that they needed him to mature. He was in his early 20s at that point. Uh, and maybe they needed him to be more mature to offer the, the other practices. Uh, he had made the commitment to be, uh, you know, a lifer in terms of the monastic vows, which does open up a, a whole uh, path that it isn't that isn't available to people who aren't that committed. Um, and then we talked in, uh, you know, in English, and he had these whiteboards, and he wanted to learn idioms. Uh, American idioms so that he would be more conversant with the uh, American students that were coming there. But, it, you know, it's quite um, uh, interesting about how uh, men and women are culturated differently. At that monastery, uh, on the women's side, when you went into the, into the meditation halls, they were absolutely uh, pristine, everything was super neat. The windows were all open, it was light, the air was blowing through. Uh, and when you went to the men's side, uh, all of the windows were closed, all of the drapes were pulled, it smelled like a locker room, it was just this dark cave where people were practicing uh, quite different. I, I think I went to engineering school at that monastery. <laughs> <laughs> Quite likely. <laughs> um, of course, the monastics were the ones on the male side, and uh, because of the patriarchal nature of the of the organization, most of the practitioners on the women's side were lay people. So quite different in that way too. There's no real path forward. Uh, for women in, in in the monastic community. Um, <clears throat> so here we uh, take on this practice most of the time. Uh, I think uh, the initial introductions, at least now, are going to be through some form of mindfulness practices, so a secularized practice, uh, which is really oriented about uh, an improvement in concentration, an improvement in, in so a baseline happiness, for instance, um, and not so oriented toward uh, seeing the human condition the way that it is, uh, enlightenment. So it's, an, it's sort of a, a lifestyle improver for, for the, the mainstream culture that we have. Hmm? Let's see here, there we go. Um, I was never in that 
that group that fit in easily into the into mainstream culture and in fact if you go back to my the early time in the uh, of, of practice in the late 60s and and early 70s uh, uh being a gay person was really way outside of what was acceptable in the mainstream so and i never really uh explored or pursued interests that were available there because it it required a level of hiding that I wasn't willing to do. Um, I remember um, the you know the Beatles came out uh, with the White Album and they went to India and sat with the Maharishi and TM was uh, sort of uh, what was happening for a lot of people and and I got a mantra and practiced it and and was able to get into some basic concentration experiences. But it wasn't um, really a, addressing the, the depth of suffering that I had coming out of the kind of childhood experiences I had into a culture that was so hostile. Um, what's happening here? Let's see. Um, when I was living in London um, in the early 70s, uh, Ram Dass's book came out, and actually it was written in a way that you could follow along with it and practice the things that he was describing and have meditative experiences that were uh, beyond uh, what a basic concentration practice would be, and he described uh, uh, um, the nature of uh, an exploration of the, the human condition. I remember uh, I was in Switzerland um, and it was raining and uh, on the day that they arrested Timothy Leary and I happened to be uh, on the block where the, all of the cars converged and he, he came out and with his umbrella, got into the back of one of the black cars and rode off. Um, <clears throat> the uh, tendency for the uh, mainstream uh, cultural view to be reinforced uh, by force uh, or held by force is, is something uh, you notice only if you don't want to participate in the mainstream culture, but it's less visible if you do. If you go along with it, then, there, then you don't run into those kinds of resistances. And if you're not included in the mainstream culture, uh, you have these experiences that people who are uh, don't necessarily have. Um, so I was always looking for an alternative to that. When I uh, moved to New York in the in the 80s, so after that period of uh, roaming around and trying to figure out what to do, I think it corresponds with the with your the age that you are also. Uh, if we break it out the way that I like to talk about it, zero to 10 is childhood, right? And then 10 to 20 is your adolescent period. And uh, childhood, you're dependent on your caregivers. You don't really have the cognitive capacity to, to uh, argue much about their point of view and the, the way that they hold the world and their relationship to you. But then when you hit adolescence, the mind, the physical quality of the mind begins to change 
you have this huge boost in your cognitive ability and you come into a place where you can begin to examine the deals that were met made uh, for you as a child and in family systems where the child was valued that the, 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 the capabilities of the child were appreciated and supported encouraged uh, the the that boost in cognitive ability strengthens the bond with the caregiver and in family systems where the child recognizes that their interests weren't really considered it breaks the bond we, we talk, call that epistemic trust uh, if you find that uh, you were cared for and that uh, who you were were appreciated and your capacities were appreciated and that they were encouraged um, uh, and that the caregivers told you the truth and and you had the sense that the reason that they told you the things that they did was because they thought it would be helpful to you then that that really strengthens the bond that cognitive boost but if you begin to recognize actually that they they didn't tell you the truth uh, and that what they were telling you wasn't meant to be helpful it breaks it <clears throat> But the, that adolescent period is also a period where, uh, as a child, you want to be able to go out and begin to expand your exploration past uh, the, the narrow frame of your uh, immediate family into the world, but you also want to be able to rush back and, and become a child again. And so the, 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 you're demanding this tremendous flexibility in your caregivers, where they let you go uh, with some uh, support, and then they let you come back and collapse back into childhood, and they don't insist that you do one or the other. They support you as you explore it, as you expand outside of the immediate family, but then they welcome you back. In your 20s, uh, this is youth. Uh, do you remember youth? I loved youth. <laughs> all that energy, all that excitement, you know, you look good. Uh, out you go into the world and you can go further than you could in adolescence. And what you begin to do is uh, out of the many directions, the many paths that are available, you begin to narrow uh, the focus of where you're going to head in your life, what you're going to explore. Uh, and then you begin to pick up the things that you need in order to to uh, pursue the things that you want to explore. And then in your 30s, of course, uh, uh, that's where you choose the thing and, uh, and, um, and get yourself in position for the big sprint at the, the gold ring in our culture, which is usually defined by social position and material achievement <clears throat> but this isn't necessarily the thing that everybody wants to do uh, i know uh, in in that part of my life really what i was looking for was to be less unhappy uh, i didn't even think that happiness was a, a, a real a possibility but i did want to be less unhappy i wanted uh, the suffering to abate somewhat and so in my early 20s, moving uh, to New York was that, that break with uh, the old and uh, the idea that I could start over and uh, make something different than what I'd, what I'd had. Um, 
was not doing a lot of meditation. Um, but then what, what um, befell, and I think that this is uh, something that happens to all of us, is there were these uh, a series of uh, setbacks that were fairly substantial. Uh, and, uh, and I wasn't particularly resilient uh, in being able to cha change uh, my responses that were so conditioned. This human condition where you, you grow up and you learn the definitions of everything. Um, from the perspective that I have now, one of the things that uh, I find so delightful is um, the, this uh, idea that we all start at zero and then we have to learn everything. And then depending on how well we do that and, and how well we can understand ourselves uh, in the systems that we grow up uh, allows us uh, to sort out what's meaningful and what isn't meaningful. And, uh, and if you can see that clearly, then you can organize your life in such a way that you really do head off toward what's genuinely meaningful. And so you live a, a rich life that's filled with one experience of meaning after another and if you can't identify that then you often uh, live in a life where there's not a lot of meaning and there's confusion about what the purpose of all of this is what's what is it that we're doing here um, <clears throat> but imagine this conundrum you grow up you spend 70 years being alive you gather all of this information all of these perspectives all of these understandings and then you die and it doesn't get passed along to the next person uh, in, intact. The next person starts at zero and then has to learn everything all the way up uh, to in these very short clips of time when you consider the, the overall uh, uh, historic arch of, of uh, our uh, existence here. And uh, um, that uh, so uh, one of the things that's happening to me is a, a sense of joyfulness about it uh, I was uh, traveling uh, over the last few days I went to my 50th high school reunion and I and I had dinner with uh, a friend who I hadn't seen since uh, college so uh, from that early 20s uh, person to a 70-year-old woman, and she uh, was marvelously opinionated about certain things. We went to a restaurant which was, was basically uh, 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 um, uh, sort of ordinary, um, uh, and uh, um, I was talking about how uh, we had gone uh, when I was in uh, in Utrecht to a, a fairly fancy um, vegan restaurant where the, the, the food was, you know, highly engineered. And uh, she said, there's one thing I can't stand. And I said, oh, what's that? And she said, going to a restaurant and then serving one pea with some foam next to it. <laughs> I mean, what is foam? <laughs> she made me laugh. <laughs>
because indeed at this very fancy restaurant at Utrecht, there was lots of foam on the plate. <laughs> George, at least the foam should expand in your stomach. <laughs> and then she said, I can't stand when people call me a cis woman. Uh, and I said, oh, yeah, why is that? She said, well, it's really the erasure of women. This is what we would call a TERF if we were in our 20s, right? Second generation feminists. Um, and, uh, and that uh, uh, um, it was just uh, really the, the idea that uh, trans women would compete on sports teams with cis women, I was an erasure of women. And, and I, I uh, myself think that, uh, that we should be expanding the definitions of gender not being so heteronormative. That's my complaint about it, that uh, if uh, trans women were competing uh, with cis men, that that would be pretty good. And if trans men were competing with cis women, that would make sense to me. And that may be the perspective of age, but I was at the hotel and I, uh, I mentioned this to the, the, uh, the, the, the man and the woman that were uh, at the reception desk and <clears throat> the alarm in the face of the, of the young woman who was uh, in her 20s um, uh, about this outrageous perspective. Uh, and complete bafflement how anyone could come up with that uh, solution uh, created this real sense of delight in me because uh, um, it's so different than, than what was possible when I was in my 20s. You know, in, in my 20s, it, it was illegal. There was no defense. You, you could be beaten to death and nothing would happen to the people who killed you. Uh, and so there's that, that recognition of this significant change, which is, I think, progress and, uh, and no awareness uh, on the part of this younger person that the circumstances were so significantly and different. Um, So how do you know, how do you get to know that? And one of the things uh, that I think it, uh, it, you need to be able to do is to be present for the experience and not tied up uh, in the experience of self, that you don't have an identification with points of view like that, that you're open, and that you can mentalize uh, an experience uh, someone else's reactions to things and recognize that it's a reflection of their conditioning. And then uh, in, in an unthreatened place around that, be curious and, and open to explore. And so really, I think that ultimately that's uh, where uh, practice leads. But I think also at a foundation of that is this uh, sense of security in the world. Uh, that comes from uh, uh, um, for myself uh, that 
that basic attachment understanding. One of the characteristics of insecure attachment uh, and disorganized attachment is this uh, uh, in this uh, fearfulness. Uh, it's another way of describing the experience of insecurity is a, is a fearfulness about things, uh, a, a, a lack of a sense of safety that produces a defensiveness, uh, which tends to lead to a, a grasping around the sense of self, a grasping around the sense of ideas that you have become comfortable with, uh, often a rejection of things that contradict the, the points of view that you have, rather than an, an openness to it, the, uh, the extreme polarity of the, uh, the dialectic in our culture is an example of that. Um, I like to describe it as the money power people and the, and the community people, these two divergent ideas about what should happen. I was listening, um, somebody talk about it, uh, taking it all the way back to uh, Confucianism and Taoism and legalism, these three big strains of talk uh, of, of understanding of the nature of the world, the, uh, the, the Confucianism being this sort of rigid, role-based, uh, money-power point of view, uh, hierarchies, um, uh, respect for the people who are higher up than you in, in the hierarchy with the understanding that they're benevolent uh, and will take care of you. And I hear that quite a bit in that I, that law and order, the, uh, money power idea. And then the Taoist, which is to understand the cycles of life, uh, the nature of um, being born, growing old and dying, the, the cycles of uh, winter, spring, summer, fall, uh, the the uh, sense of the collective uh, energy of people uh, supporting each other in this environment. And then the, the legalistic group, which really translates into the, the fascist uh, point of view. So we have these very long arcs of, of ideas and uh, forms of culture and and yet we have these individuals who, who are like little blips of a, li of a liveliness in that range. So how can you come into a place where you really are open to contributing to this, this sort of experience of being alive, <clears throat> free to do it uh, and joyful in doing it, uh, and not so caught up and that um, really brings us back to this um, piece of practice i like the buddhist frame because uh, and particularly the theravada, theravada frame which is uh, initially investigating the nature of the experience of self uh, as uh, 
insubstantial is not really the whole game. And in fact, one way that I like to talk about it is that <clears throat> you have the activity of yourself and the conscious experience of self is the audience that watches what you do. It's not the author, not the creator, not the doer, but actually the audience. And you get into a place of openness and kindness and curiosity around what it is you're doing. Rather than thinking that uh, the self makes all of those decisions and follows through or doesn't follow through. Is that making sense? That perspective different. Uh, and then getting to a place uh, where you've done enough uh, intentional positivity training that that experience is pleasant. I know that when I came in, the, the associations were so negative that each time the self-experience arose, I was in this intense negative state and that created an aversion, a kind of self-hatred to the having to experience that intensely negative state every time my sense of self arose. So wanting to get away from it. Um, and what the, and not really being able to recognize that what, what was happening there was a, an imbalance. And then moving toward the heart practices and uh, intentionally uh, developing a positivity and association with the experience of self so that when the self experience arises what arises is this very pleasant experience then the the aversion toward the sense of self disappears and there's a pleasant curiosity about what i'm going to do <laughs> right in these situations and a sense of confidence that i'll be able to do something that that's effective uh, uh, I remember um, a very low self-confidence. It's a very painful place. And, uh, and um, the intentional development of confidence um, as this very gradual thing um, until uh, the expectation really is that it will turn out okay. It's very different. Uh, this is not to say that it turns out okay, just that that's what the expectation is. That's very different than the expectation that it's going to just go completely to hell, right? Uh, because all of the plans that you make in that unconscious processing of creating conceptual reality when you really think it's going to go badly are quite different than the things that you do when you think it's going to go well. Christian? Sounds like you had a heckler in your audience. What do you mean? If the, if the audience is watching the... Oh! The... <laughs> my sense of self was heckling my actual activity of self. Um, well, you know, we, when you form um, reality, conceptual reality, part of it is what you expect to happen. Um, and part of it is who you're going to share this with. Uh, 
sort of object that can be sensed has contact with the capacity to sense, consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for processing speed. Does it need urgent attention? Does it not matter whether you get to it if there's time uh, and it's pleasant? Uh, can you enjoy it? Then the undifferentiated sensing experience is compared to the perceptual database. And if there's a thread that has a similar enough pattern to it, that thread attaches to the experience of the present moment and all of the meaning of all of the times that you've sensed that pattern attach to it and it unfolds into conceptual reality. Uh, nowhere in that process are you experiencing what's actually happening. What you're experiencing is what it means to you. If your anticipation is um, that you'll be delighted and accepted and encouraged, that's very different than if you think you'll be rejected and shunned. And so the whole way that you enter into and respond to those moments is different. But, it's, but it is based on the meaning that you assign uh, rather than what's actually happening. If you go into a situation where you expect to be uh, uh, delighted in and you're not delighted in, it's, it's a kind of hmm. Uh, if you go into a situation where you expect to be attacked and you, and you attack first, uh, then you, you change the, the nature uh, in both cases by the action that you take. The idea with practice is to develop the capacity to mentalize fast enough so that you can see all of that unfold and you have agency to choose the way that you create conceptual reality, knowing that that's what you're doing. Um, in the Tibetan approach, of course, we, we expand outward into awareness, uh, identify with the nature of awareness and watch all of that stuff arising and passing in the experience of awareness without contracting into the identification of self, without ident contracting into the, the experience of world. Um, these are views, attachment views are very compelling. Uh, one of the reasons that the exploration of them is so important is so that you can see when, when the 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 mind is equanimous and the reflection of conceptual reality off the surface of the mind is accurate and undistorted and when uh, the mind isn't and it's distorting and creating these distortions in the perception of the world One of the reasons that I like the attachment approach to early practice is because uh, you can describe uh, views that uh, are fairly easy to find. Uh, in the beginning of practice, uh, where uh, nothing is really well defined and and the concepts are um, cultural artifacts uh, and often poetic but not really relatable it makes them harder to see uh, whereas with the attachment conditioning it's really 
uh, embedded in your experience of things and the way that you navigate and those things you're constantly doing and so that they're available to you to explore uh, easily. Uh, it's also very uh, uh, effective immediately in terms of um, being free to choose differently in the way that you represent uh, self and world so that the, the, the karmic threads that you create uh, are tend to be more beneficial than afflictive. Is that all making sense? Um, Carol. Um, uh, so, so, um, I had, I had a really strong firsthand experience of some of the stuff that you're talking about right now. Uh, um, I, I had a, I had someone who came as a guest and they were here a couple of weeks and they started really, um, like violating a lot of personal boundaries. Um, they were staying in my studio apartment, uh, and, um, uh, I, I had really old stuff triggered. And so buried with that old stuff was, you know, a lot of that sense of insecurity and self-hatred and all of that. And they were things that I hadn't actively felt for a very long time, mm. but this person, um, uh, you know, I, just the, the overall sense of lack of safety and her threats and, um, and, and hostile attitude and my inability to get her to leave um, or get her to comply with some, you know, fair boundaries. Uh, I, I felt, I mean, I'm, 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 she left like yesterday or the day before, day before. But I'm there's like like there's a cache of residual stuff still almost like floating to the surface, and you know in terms of view, um, I can feel like a piece of it go through, and the view that that old negative view is there, and and then it passes, and I back to kind of an energetic joyful sense of life and taking pleasure. But um, wow, it's it's having a trigger like that. What a how illustration of how mind states can and how deep conditioning is, and how you can work. You have to work all of it. Uh, you can't do a little bit and have the expectation that it then will free everything. Uh, which I think is one of those fascinating things. You do a lot of work, and then the majority of the uh, of the conditioning is clear, and then there's these little pockets that you rarely touch into that you can uh, almost experience is not there anymore until something happens. And so that was the question. That the this is an I'm seeing it as an opportunity. It's like oh okay, that little cache of stuff. Right. 
by me being, I guess, present with it as it comes up and it's, it's actually, I think, floating out. I'm feeling, I'm feeling reconfigured somehow. Like it was there as some sort of, I don't know, ballast or hidden thing that I'd just gotten used to. But now I'm feeling, my sense of self is feeling different. And I, I feel like the potential uh, more freedom exists having gone through that. Yeah. Loading up the, the, pos the intentional positivity around those experiences so that the database is then packed with the positive experiences around the old uh, difficulty so that when it arises again, the pattern arises with both the intense negative and but also the intense positive. So it begins to balance in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I wonder, how, how, is there a time frame on how long it takes this stuff to kind of come back into <laughs> balance? Uh, I'm back to the metaphor of Minesweeper. I don't know if you ever played it. Minesweeper? A, a PC game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, what happened to you is you hit a square and then all the squares around it lit up with a high number. So it's like a minefield. Yeah. So you just have to be uh, diligent and careful. And each time those reactions come up, um, embed positivity into them. So when they're, they're re-remembered, they're embedded. Yeah. So even when she was here, I, I never acted out. I, I, I just kept that. May all beings be peaceful. <laughs> going. So it wouldn't affect my behavior because right. I wanted to fucking take her out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, and then you do it enough and then uh, it's relieved. Uh, but it, it's hard to know. Sometimes uh, using the minesweeper metaphor, you hit a square and half the board opens up. Sometimes you hit a square and it's just really compacted. And so it depends on conditioning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know what you're going to get. Right. Yeah. Shinzen, you know, used to do, use the metaphor of that card, the card with black thread sticking out of it. And you grab a thread and you pull it. Oh, yeah. And then you pull it. And some of them pull right out. And some of them you pull and you pull and you pull and you pull and it never seems like they you come to the end of it. If you could turn the card around and see how long the threads were, it would be easy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, two more feet. Not so bad. Yeah. This one's only this is a short one. <laughs> but because you can't see it, then you just have to practice. Yeah. But Thank so you. let's do some practice. We'll do some. Let's do some uh, meta for self, loving kindness for self. So how did that go? Good enough? So we just started at level two. If you're interested in the attachment stuff, uh, you can join the next class. Uh, is I think next week on Tuesday. If, if you haven't joined by then, the class will close and then we'll, we'll do another one in the winter. Um, we have a retreat the first week of October. There's some spaces left in that. Take a look at that if you want. It's up at Seven Circles, which is where we've been going for the last 
six years or so, it has uh, uh, become a casualty of COVID and we'll be closing after this retreat. So it's the last one there. Uh, I think we are going to go to Asia in February uh, for three weeks, uh, set a retreat there. I'm not sure exactly where, but uh, we're trying to work out the details uh, and hopefully we'll get that uh, together uh, uh, by October so that there's time to plan it. We'll go, we'll do some, uh, 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 I like to say cultural tourism. <laughs> And then sit a retreat and then uh, do some more uh, of that, uh, looking around and seeing what's what's going on there. Um, I offer the teachings in this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. And so really appreciate it if you'd be willing to make a, a donation. There's a link on the website for that. It helps support me and also the work Meta Group is doing. Um, we're going to do a... Uh, level one class for the for Central European time starting in November, and then we'll do a level two class for Central European time uh, starting this winter. And then I'm going to do uh, a retreat in Utrecht in June, if you happen to be in Europe or interested in going. Um, so that's everything that we have uh, scheduled and coming up. Uh, thank you for your practice. I'll see you soon, I hope. Bye now.